Well, let's pray and then we'll get started. We'll probably have some time for more fellowship at the end. Father, we are so thankful to be able to be here this morning in your house of worship, Father, with our brothers and sisters. And let us not take for granted this privilege that we have to be able to meet openly and freedom to worship you, Father. I know many of our brothers and sisters around the world do not have that privilege, and yet your truth prevails, your people prevail, your remnant always prevails, and we are so thankful for that and your blessings to us. We do want to lift up this Lady Havana who has found spots on her lung. Father, we pray for healing. Father, we do want your hand of healing upon her, but we also, more importantly, want your presence, Father, your salvation your presence with this this life. And and we just admit, Father, that we are helpless and that you are the great healer of both body and spirit. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Do you all remember where we are? Romans 12. If you want to be turning there. Jim spent several weeks in Romans 6, and I am spending several weeks in Romans 12. That was not planned. It just worked out that way. They are very complimentary verses. If you will remember last week, we looked at the first two verses. We're going to continue with that. But if you remember, I said that as I began, one of the biggest problems I think that the church, especially in America, faces today is that people go to church to get rather than to to give you know they rather they go to get rather than to give and the verses in Romans 12 are in complete opposition to that frame of thinking because it tells us what God expects to get from us not what we are to get from God or from from the church and I titled the lesson extreme worship because the verses are about worship. It's about giving our all in worship. If you remember, the three points of the next few weeks were that we were to give God our our everything, our whole lives, our body, our mind, and our wills. And that's what we're looking at. He wants all of us, and that's how we worship Him, is by giving Him our all. So what we'll do is we'll read those two verses again, and then we'll continue on. Romans 12 Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So if you were not here last week, I I said I was going to go over those three parts and our body, our minds and our wills. And last week we began by looking at the body and how we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. And if you remember, before I got into that, we talked about before every great accomplishment comes great motivation. And we talked about what the motivation was for us to live that way. And the motivation was that that God has been so merciful to us. He said, I therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. And we talked about what those mercies of God were. All the first 11 chapters of Romans talk about all the mercies of God and that we are to be motivated by that. We, you know, we could be motivated by the wrath of God or the discipline of God or the judgment of God. 
But Paul says that we are to be motivated by the mercies of God. And that's we, we talked about that. And then we look, talked about what it meant to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. They go, God doesn't want dead sacrifices. He wants living sacrifices. And Paul said in other places that we are to buffet our bodies and make it our slave. And that's we talked about that, what that what that meant. What we ended the lesson by throwing a little bit of a kink into my title of extreme worship by saying that the, the actual text, Paul says, this is our spiritual service of worship or some versions say our reasonable service of worship. Because that word comes from the word we get logic from. It's the logical outcome. So it's not really extreme in the sense of all that extraordinary in the sense that it really should be our logical, reasonable outcome of our life is because of the mercy of God that we will give God everything and our bodies, our minds and our wills. So today we'll continue on and we're going to look at the second part of that. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I'm going to begin by asking a question. And remember my rules on questions and answers. Keep them short. I like participation, but don't get long-winded. Participation in short three, four words. How do we as individuals struggle today with conforming to the world? Is that a problem for us in conforming to the world? Actually, first of all, is it a problem? Do you think we have struggles with conforming to the world? I see a lot of head shaking. What ways do we struggle in conforming to the world? Yes. We let our armor slip. We let our armor slip. Specifically, how? How? What ways do we do that? that that's very true. Yes. We worldly, treasures. worldly treasures. We struggle with worldliness in the form of financial and treasures. Somebody else. Time poorly. We don't devote our time to spiritual things. A lot of times we devoting most of our time to worldly things. Somebody else? Yes. We are right. We are in this world and we are not to be of this world. And that's what this lesson is about. What specific ways do we have trouble conforming? How about the way we dress? How about the music we listen to? The things that we watch on television? How about our... You know, when you think about your mind and things that go on in your mind, do you struggle with the world's attitude about money, or the world's attitude about power, prestige, success, all of those things, I think. And you could go on and on and on if you really got down and talked about all the different ways that we might struggle with conforming to the world. How about the church? Is the church immune to struggling to conforming to the world? I see head shaking no. How does the church struggle with conforming to the world? They try to copy the standards of the world. Anybody else? The ecumenical movement. Ear tickling. Wanting to hear what the people want to hear, not necessarily what the Bible says or what we need to share. And I think it's very obvious that the church today struggles with conforming to the world. If you go to many churches today, I was thinking about one of the churches. We had a family member that went to another church and occasionally in Kentucky, and we would visit that church with them. And they were one of these churches that wanted everybody to fit in and to feel very normal and comfortable. So, you know, and to a certain point, I understand with that, you know, but 
this would, they went to the extreme that if you didn't wear raggedy blue jeans with holes in it, and that, that you actually felt like you didn't fit in. They went so far the other extreme, trying to make everybody feel comfortable. Um, and, and like she said, the ear tickling, you know, the message needs to be positive and uplifting, encouraging. Never say the word sin or blood or anything that might strike a nerve with someone. That's con- trying to conform to the world because it doesn't teach what the Bible says. Um, but it, and it's very sad. Um, and if you read the Gallup polls that they do, and I know they're not specific on which churches they poll, but when you look at the church worldwide or, or even in America, when you look, read the polls, you'll find that there's a lot of issues that the church and the world, it doesn't seem like there's much difference. You know, there might not be a lot of difference between the attitude of the church and divorce or living with someone before marriage. Even abortion and homosexuality and issues like that are changing rapidly and the church is in the sense of trying to conform to the way the world views. But God's word, and it's nowhere more, it's, it's very frequently in God's word, no more emphatic than the verses that we're looking at, that we are challenged to not conform to the world. The word conform is from the word sesamitizo, which refers to an outward expression that does not reflect what is within. It is used as masquerading or putting on an act. Paul is saying we are not to masquerade around as something we are not. I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at that from the opposite position. When I think about myself or even other Christians um, not living up to the standard that Christ set for us, I think sometimes we view it as, you know, we are just sinners trying to live righteously. But that's not really the case according to this scripture. The verse says just the opposite. We are redeemed, regenerated persons, new creatures in Christ. And this verse is telling this word, by the use of this word, it's telling us to live that way. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold because that is not who you are. We are redeemed. Our souls are redeemed. Don't masquerade as something you are not. We are to live outwardly what our souls have already been redeemed. So if we're not to be of this world... We need to understand what the world means in Scripture. Uh, it's used several different words and several different meanings of the word world. We have three specific uses of the word world in Scripture. First one is the physical world. God created the world, the physical world around us, the plants, the trees, the animals, the universe, the sky. Those, that's one use of the word world. Um, John 3.16 is for God so loved the world. That's not talking about the physical world. That's talking about the world of humanity. He loves the world of humanity that he made. That's another use of the word world. The third way that the word world is used, and the way it's used here, is it's a world order. It's a way of life, which is under Satan's control. We are told that Satan is the prince of this world, this system or way of life. Somebody mentioned the full armor of God a minute ago. Turn over to Ephesians six eleven through 13, and we'll see how one way this is used. Ephesians 6, it says in Ephesians 6, verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces 
of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So here you see Paul talking about where our spiritual battle lies. The word world here means the ideologies, the belief system that is in the world, the false belief system, any ideology that opposes God. Have you ever run into people who you could classify as believers in conspiracy theories? You think there's this group of secret societies and people that are dictating all the events of the world and and they're trying, you know, all these evil things we see happening in the world are are being conspired against. Um, Every now and then you run into somebody who believes that. And I don't believe that for a minute, but I do believe, and I do believe that Scripture, like this one, implies it. There is a group of people that are behind the world system and what's going on. It's Satan. It's satanic. And even though it's these people may not know each other or know what's going on, Satan is orchestrating events and circumstances throughout the globe to basically, you know, try to run against God. And to, this is that world system. It's satanic. Any worldview that is opposed to God's truth or ignores it would fall into the category of the world. Now we know that it's not. Also, unfortunately, it's not uncommon for for unbelievers to masquerade as Christians. There's, all of us would admit that there's people that come to church that are not saved and they wear the mask of being a Christian. But what Paul is saying is don't you do the same thing. Don't you as a Christian wear the mask of the world. Don't masquerade as someone who you are not. So instead of masquerading or conforming to the world, our text tells us that we are to be transformed. Verse 2 tells us be transformed. Don't conform, but be transformed. The word transform comes from the word metamorpho, which sounds like our word metamorphosis. It means to change outwardly. Matthew used the same word in Matthew 17:2 when he described Jesus's transfiguration remember when he was on the mount and it said that he transfigured himself that word transfigured is the same word that's used here to be transformed and if you remember that text it says that his face shone like the sun that his garments became white as light so for a brief period Christ's divine nature and glory at least in a limited way was shown outwardly and matched what he really was inwardly and that's what Paul is telling us, he is telling us to let our outward actions be in harmony with our inward soul and spirit that has been redeemed. Here's a question. Can you really be good at not conforming to the world in the sense of avoiding all the bad worldly behaviors and being separate in the way you dress, the way you talk, the music you listen to, and still not truly be transformed? Of course you can. That's the Pharisees did that. You know, they they were able to follow a list of rules. And, you know, you even have people like the Mormons that from all outwardly expressions, a lot of times they seem to be just doing all the right things. But this transformation that Paul is talking about is something about transforming outwardly what has already happened to you inwardly. And we're not talking about trading a list of to-do list of the flesh to the to-do list of the law. We're talking about matching our inward redeemed spirits and our actions that we do outwardly to match because of who we are in Christ. Here's another question. If a thief quits stealing for a while, 
is he no longer a thief? I ask this in counseling a lot because the principle behind that, there's a verse in Ephesians 4. Actually, if you want to turn over there, I'll read it for you. Ephesians chapter 4. If a thief quits stealing for a while, is he no longer a thief? Then they usually ask me, how long? (laughs) Well, (laughs) if he goes without stealing for a year, is he no longer a thief? Well, is he not stealing because he doesn't have the opportunity? Is he not stealing because he's just fighting the urge? Is he just not stealing because of fear of going to prison? Ephesians chapter 4 has the answer. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. This is a section of scriptures that we call in counseling the put-off, put-on passages. And they're throughout the Bible. The scriptures tell us to put off certain behaviors and to put on other behaviors. And a thief is still a thief unless he's been transformed and he's into something else. An honest, hard-working individual who no longer does that. And it's, all of those scriptures are the same thing. It talks. Look at verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. So quit talking trash. Quit talking unholy language. But only such a word as is good for edification. So put off bad speech. Put on only those words of good edification. So when Paul tells us not to be conformed, he doesn't just leave it there. He says, but be transformed. Replace who you were and be who you're supposed to be. Be transformed into something else. It's like the butterfly, you know, that, you know, be transformed. It's that type of transformation. The beautiful butterfly comes from a caterpillar and you're to be transformed. And that's the metamorphosis. That's what we're supposed to be. The Greek scholars who study the language tell us that these words conformed and transformed are passive imperatives. Passive means we don't do it, that we allow it to be done to us. I think that's very important. An imperative means it's not a suggestion, it's a command. So in the case of conforming, there is a negative in front, meaning do not allow yourselves to be conformed. And transform says allow yourselves to be transformed. Do not allow yourselves to be conformed. Allow yourself to be transformed. So if we're not the ones doing it totally, how is it being done? What's the power behind it? It's God. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are to allow the Holy Spirit to not let us be conformed, and we are to allow the Holy Spirit to let us be transformed. I wrote down 2 Corinthians 3.18 as a text that says basically this. It says, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the image from glory to glory, justice from the Lord, the Spirit. So it's the power of the Holy Spirit that is working in us, but we are to assist by allowing the Holy Spirit to do His work. So the question is, who's winning in your life, the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the world? Do you love the things of the world or the things of God? And just saying that brings up the verse, do you love the things of the world? First John 2.15 through 17, I think, is a memory verse I had a while back. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, 
are not of the Father, but are of the world. And the world is passing away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And as I was dwelling on this, I remembered an example of someone, and I think Steve used it in a, in a sermon once that I had made a note in my Bible. There's an example in Scripture of a follower of Christ, not only a follower, but a missionary or a fellow worker of Paul, who had a problem with loving the world. Do you remember who it was? There was a fellow by the name of Demas that had a problem with it. He's only mentioned three times in Scripture. And Philemon 24, he was listed as a fellow worker of Paul. In Colossians 4.14, he's listed as one sending greetings to the church at Colossae. But in 2 Timothy 4, for the third and final time, he is identified as a deserter from the Lord's work. And it says, because he loved this present world. It said, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. So we find a negative example of someone that was a worker in the church with Paul that fell away at least from the work temporarily. We don't know the, his whole fate, but he fell away because he loved the world. And I have to ask myself as I hear things like this is, you know, how much do I love the world? How many times do I neglect the work of the gospel because of my love for the world? And it's a battle, isn't it? I think it's a battle for all of us to not love the world or the things in the world. So as you dwell on that, then you say, where does the battle begin? Where is the battle fought? In the mind. Our scripture actually says, back in Romans 12, to be transformed, how? By the renewing of the mind. That's where the battle goes. The battle is in the mind. And the battle takes place there. Ephesians 4, right above the verses we looked at earlier, Ephesians 4.22 says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside your old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. Before our bodies are going to fall into line, before our tongue talks right, before our eyes don't stray, before our feet and hands are quick to serve and not quick to go to sin, we first have to have a renewed mind. And that is the key. One of the commentators I read said something I really liked. He said, the mind has a spirit or a mindset. It doesn't just have a view. It has a viewpoint. It doesn't just have the power to perceive and detect. It has a posture, a demeanor, an attitude or bent. And what determines that attitude or bent? I like that. I would call that a worldview. Most everybody has a worldview, whether they admit it or not. And what determines that worldview? What are some of the things that influence our worldview? Not just ours, but the anybody's. Not just Christians, but in, in general. What kind of things determine your worldview? What you're exposed to. What teaching. Where you went to school. Who your parents are. Yes. Media. That's a big one. Doug. Politics, yes. Education, the college that you attend, your professors that you have. Anybody else? Lots of different things contribute to that worldview that we have. Somebody mentioned media. I was looking at a lot of different things, but media is just, I mean, today, I wonder what my grandparents would think if they watched the commercials today. The things they talk about during the commercials are 
just it's amazing. And to think that we are not influenced at all. Maybe if you're a strong Christian, you can battle those things. But for someone who's not very mature, the, the influence that that has is probably don't grab the, the full context of that. But I came across something that I thought was interesting. It was a little brief thing on a devotional I read. And it said, on Easter Sunday in 1929, ten women walked down Fifth Avenue in New York City in a Torches of Freedom march. How did they express their freedom? By smoking cigarettes. Their message, that women should be allowed to smoke as freely as men. Their march attracted many photographers and was covered in newspapers worldwide. In fact, this single event was decisive in making cigarettes more accepted in society. But few knew that this march had been conceived and orchestrated by Edward Barnes, a legendary public relations professional who was working for the American Tobacco Company. In his career, he helped revolutionize the ways in which behavior could be manipulated. His clients included Dixie Cups, the brewing industry, and Mack Trucks. His strategy became popular with politicians and even influenced the Nazis in Germany. He argued that public relations professionals could continuously and systematically change the way people thought through deception and manipulation. His techniques were strategies changed the way in which businesses and politics were conducted. Today, we are constantly bombarded with the impact of advertisements, the underlying themes of TV programs and films, the morals encouraged by books, the opinions of text messages, the hollow promises of politicians, the taunts of atheists and skeptics, how tempting it can be to conform to this manipulation. And that's where we are today. Everywhere we turn, we're being tempted to conform to somebody else's standard and not necessarily the Word of God. Music, I think, for young people is a big one. The trash that that kids listen to, video games that kids are bombarded with, and all their friends have them, all their friends do it, and they want to spend hours in front of these violent, horrendous video games. I came across something as a youngster when computers were first coming out. I was exposed to this abbreviation, G-I-G-O. Y'all are old enough to surely remember what that means, don't you? Garbage in, garbage out. He's a computer guy. Garbage in, garbage out. So that our brains are like that. Garbage in, garbage out. And we need to control what we're exposed to as Christians. Two other passages I wrote down that show us the problem in our minds. First Peter 1, 13 and 14. First Peter 1, 13 and 14 says, Therefore, that's one of our favorite words, right? Therefore, Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. In Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. I emphasize two words in there. Did you catch that in both the scriptures? Ignorance. The problem with our minds is directly related sometimes to our ignorance of God and the hardness of our hearts. Now, does ignorance mean stupid? What does ignorance mean? Lack of knowledge. It's a lack of knowledge. So, As Christians, sometimes we are not doing and walking in the way that we should because of ignorance, in the sense of we are ignorant what the Word of God says, also our hardened hearts. Have you ever went through a period of time in your life where you slipped backwards spiritually? 
I mean, some may be there now. I think most of us have experienced a period of time where we as Christians didn't seem to walk the way that we should be walking as we know now. Somebody might be in that point in their life right now. And I think if you examine deeply and, and honestly that period of your life, you'll find that if you're honest with yourself, that your problem may have been that you were not allowing your mind to be renewed because you weren't spending time in God's Word. You weren't spending time with God's people. You weren't inundating yourself with the things to keep you from the worldly thoughts and, and attentions. So our goal is to become more like the image of Christ. There's something that I do sometimes in counseling, and I talk about the line of influence. If I had my little whiteboard, I would draw a straight line, and I would call it the line of influence. We said that, that we are influenced by things, but you can narrow all those things down to two things. You can narrow it down to the influence of sinful society or the influence of God and His Word. Everything that you all mentioned, all the things you said that you mentioned are all in one category. When you talk about education or a professor, well, that still falls either on one extreme or the other. His teaching is influenced by God's Word or sinful society. When you think about your friends or media, so is that media influenced by God's Word or sinful society? So where you're at in that line of influence, how spiritual you are, is based on where you are in that line of influence. Are you way over on the right where it's God and His Word? Or are you way over on the left close to the sinful society? And have you ever met somebody that you just think is one of the most godly, most spiritually mature people? He is probably way over on the right side being influenced by God's Word and not being influenced heavily by the world. So that's something we have to keep in mind. And if we find ourselves in a period where we are not where we want to be spiritually, then we need to examine what, uh, where we're at in that line of influence. I thought about 1 Corinthians 9.22 and a couple of other verses as I was doing this lesson because I actually have to be honest, I had conflicting thoughts came to mind as I was, as I was reading this and studying this. I thought about some verses like 1 Corinthians 9.22 where Paul said, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now, how is that conflicting? Well, that says, in some ways, is that doesn't really talk about conforming. That talks about becoming all things. I mean, it kind of does talk about conforming, coming all things to all people, um, not standing out. I thought about 1 Corinthians 10.32, give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone. I don't know about you, but if I try to please everyone... I'm usually not standing up biblically if I'm trying to please everybody. So I was just thinking about things. I was thinking about how do these scriptures work together? Can you please people if you refuse to conform to their thoughts and ways? Another tension I thought of was the one in First Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. It says to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands so that you might live properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. In other words, don't make waves if you don't have to. But we're also told in scriptures like First Timothy 3.12, we're told that if we are to 
live godly lives, then we're going to be persecuted. So as you think about those things, you see this tension that's building between these verses. I know when Terry and I decided to homeschool, and I'm telling my age here because that was 30-something years ago, a lot of the young people here homeschool, and you don't think anything about it. But 30 years ago, when we started to homeschool, nobody knew what it was. And we were not conforming to the world standard when we decided to homeschool. Even our church friends were like, what? You're going to do what? You know, and what are you doing? You know, especially our parents. I mean, you know, I, I know how you did in school. You're going to homeschool? And the, the things that <laughs> came up, you know, there was tension. Terry and I were never ones to really do good about conforming to the, what everybody, the status quo. We always kind of tried to follow and do what we felt we were being led to do. But I remember that that didn't make it didn't seem like we were living peaceful, quiet lives. We were bringing controversy into our families, into the mix. So the battle is, how do we do this and and make these scriptures compatible? Paul wasn't confused when he said these seemingly opposing statements. He is describing this tension of being in the world like our brother back there said, being in the world but not being of the world. And we are challenged with living a life as Christians and balancing these truths. I came across a quote by Andrew Walls, who wrote a book entitled The Missionary Movement in Christian History, and he calls it this tension between these two impulses, the indigenous and pilgrim principle. You know what indigenous means. You know, If you have plants that are indigenous to this area, then that means they... They are from this area. They, they do well here. They're part of this environment. That's one principle. We are indigenous to this world. We were born here. We live here. We reside here. We eat and sleep here. This is where we're at. But the pilgrim side of us says that we are to loosen our grip on it. This isn't our eternal home. You have scriptures like First Peter that says we're alien and strangers. You have other scriptures that call us ambassadors, so our eternal home is heaven. Jesus himself said, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one in the world, but don't be stained by the world. Both principles. Another verse I came across, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Paul said, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of this world. Paul knew we lived here, that we worked here, that we would have to, out of necessity, associate with unbelievers and immoral people. He went on to explain that he was talking about someone who claimed to be a brother in this passage. This was actually a passage about church discipline. So we are indigenous. We live here, we work here, we associate with all those around us, even immoral, unsaved people. But the important principle is that we don't conform to their image. You know, our goal is Romans 8, 29, right? Predestined to be conformed to his image, the image of his son. So we're not to wear the mask of the world. Don't pretend to be something we were never meant to be. Don't be squeezed into their mold, even though we live and work and play right here. Can you think of an example in Scripture? I'm thinking of the Old Testament, of someone in the Bible. There's actually several, but I'm thinking of one in particular who lived in a foreign land, in a foreign world, 
He didn't fit in, but he did fit in. He, he lived and worked there. He applied both of these principles. He lived and worked, rose to power in, the, in those lands. Daniel is the one I was thinking of. Joseph did the same thing, but Daniel was the one I was thinking of. He had, was a prime example of how someone that really was not from that world, he was taken there by captivity, but he thrived in that world because of his character. He was rose up to power, but he never compromised his spiritual beliefs. He was who he was on the outside along with who he was on the inside. And as always, I try to make my lessons applicable. So I was trying to, as I thought about this, how do we make this applicable? How do we meditate on how not to be conformed to this world, this corrupt system that we live in, which seems to be getting corrupter by the day? How do we do that and apply these indigenous and pilgrim principles to our own lives? And there's lots of applications that I thought about. But I thought about one that came to mind for me because it's in the news so much today, and it's the topic of homosexuality. Have you noticed how much it's in the news lately? We are being bombarded by a propaganda from, from that, that community to basically make everyone conform to that viewpoint. So how do we, as Christians, we hold our beliefs, but we be biblical in our response? And I, as I was thinking about that, it's it's more of an attitude than anything else. Is a homosexual person any more a sinner than any other lost person? No, they're not. I have found myself finding that sin very disgusting and very reprehensible, and I can't understand it. So sometimes I think I grade my sins of people, and I grade them higher than others. But that's not biblical in our response. That person is just as lost as any other person that might be a good Mormon or whatever. They're just, just as lost as anyone else, and their sin is, is just as lost in, in God's eyes. And, and I have rental property, so I've had to come to grips with who I'm going to rent to as a, as a landlord. Is my willingness to rent to a homosexual any different than willing to rent to an unmarried person that might be have a live-in or someone that frequently comes over and stays with them. It's not really that much different, is it? So you have to come to grips with the person and the sin. But we don't do what many churches today are doing, and they are conforming to the world standard on this sin. They are saying, well... I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to ignore it because I think they're born that way and God, you know, you can't really hold them accountable for the way they were born. And that's what many churches are doing, right? And that's not biblical. And Lakeside, doesn't, of course, doesn't do that. We teach the, the Word straightforwardly. But many churches are not doing that. So we have to be strong in our biblical response, but we have to be mild and gentle as people treating sinners and i think that's how you apply the indigenous principle and the principle of being a pilgrim you know if you own a restaurant i saw where a restaurant refused to you know let somebody because of certain thing they wouldn't let them eat there you know you got to have some balance to your response but as a church we do not and as a believer we do not we're we're quick to give an answer you know biblically to those type of things so I think that was one example. I think you could you could find many others on, on the ways that you have to put these into practice in your life. And I think that's the struggle we have as Christians is to examine ourselves and see how we 
are being tugged at by the world and conforming to the world and and we have to look at the issues and I think for me personally and I think for many Christians we sometimes have it's easy to point a finger it's easy to look at other people's problems but it's hard to examine our own hearts and we need to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves how am I being conformed to the world is my viewpoint of materialistic things the house the car I drive, is it being influenced by the world or is it being influenced by Scripture? You know, and, and I think in America today, you know, my, my own life, I'm so busy that I don't sometimes feel like I have time to get to know my neighbors. I don't, you know, that's I'm being tugged at. And why am I doing that? You know, is that, you know, really just because I want certain level of standard of living or what is it? You know, you have to examine yourself and really tug at yourself to find answers to these questions and not be conformed to the world, but be applying biblical principles to our life. I read something by John Piper that I want to read to you as I close that I think really shares the biblical response of a pilgrim. He said, On the pilgrim side of the tension, we make our Christ-exalting, Christ-centered, soul-saving, biblical worldview known with broken-hearted joy. Joy because Christ really is the sovereign Lord of the universe and will establish justice and purity in due time out of this fallen world. And brokenhearted because we share in the pain and the misery of what sin has brought on this world. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's Romans chapter 8. The pilgrims groan with the co-creation as we witness our true homeland, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Here's where I have trouble. He said, we do not smirk at the misery or the merrymaking of immoral culture. We weep. Being pilgrims is not being being cynical. The salt of the earth does not mock rotting meat. Where it can, it saves and seasons. Where it can't, it weeps. Being Christian pilgrims in America culture does not end our influence. It takes the swagger out of it. We don't get cranky when evil triumphs for a season. We don't whine when things don't go our way. We are not hardened with anger. We understand what's happening is not new. The early Christians were profoundly out of step with their culture. The imperial worlds of Christ were ringing in their ears. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That was a time and this is a time for indomitable and tearful joy and unwavering ministries of mercy. The greatness of Christian pilgrims is not success but service. Whether we win or lose, we witness to the way of truth and beauty and joy. We don't own culture. I think sometimes in America we think we own the culture. We don't own culture. We don't rule it. We serve it with broken-hearted joy and long-suffering mercy for the good of man and the glory of Jesus Christ. I thought that was really good. Paul wasn't confused when he had these, what seemed to be on the surface, conflicting words. He wasn't confused. We are challenged to not be conformed to the world around us, to be transformed, not into something different, but to be transformed into what we were meant to be, what we already are in spirit, to align our body, our minds, and our wills with our redeemed spirits. And we do that even as we reside in a fallen, sin-stained world. How do we do it? 
only by the Holy Spirit's help as we saturate ourselves with humility-minded obedience of God's Word. So I think the only thing, you know, that if you get anything out of this lesson, think about that line of influence in your life. Is it being influenced by the world and sinful society, or is it being influenced by God's Word? And what's our response need to be because of it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the text in Romans that we read today. Father, we pray that you would help us to digest this properly, Father, to mull it over in our hearts and our minds and apply it to our lives in a way that makes us grow more closer to your Son's image, Father, for that is your plan for our lives and that does bring you glory. May you keep all distractions from us as we enter into the worship hour in a few minutes, Father, that we may hear and your word preached. May we praise you in spirit and in truth, Father, and may we bring glory to your son, Jesus. May we focus on the mercy that he has bestowed and given to all of us, Father, and may that motivation motivate us to walk a more holy and righteous life and more pleasing in your sight. It is in your most precious son name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.